cause that is I am forced to restore what I did not steal. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. But as for me, afflicted and in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let's pray together. <clears throat> God, we thank you for your word that is life to us. And we know that you call us to not only wrestle with your word in our mind, but to believe, to receive by faith in our hearts so that we would be transformed by your living word. <clears throat> and we ask now that you would do this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. I actually, um, like Garrett, have four children, and uh, it's a joy being a father of a clan. Um, and every year, we make it a point to take a family uh, picture. And I remember before our youngest, Daniel, was born, uh, we went in for a picture not knowing how it was going to turn out with now first boy, the newest edition, and because um, we had such a hard time before with just two girls. Uh, we braced ourselves for the worst, and sure enough, it was horrible. Uh, but we managed to walk away with few, like, decent pictures, one of which is framed up in our living room. And uh, we did so because it was so, so classic. It captured the essence of all three of my kids. Lydia, my oldest, is sitting there with this plastic smile on her face. Uh, she's quite the thespian, and she knows when to perform. Hannah, she's got her hand raised in the air with her feet crossed and this weird smile on her face. And she, true to form, is a carefree, almost hippie-like person. And James, my third is, uh, he had this blank look on his face, and sure enough, to this day, he's still clueless. He, knows, he has no idea what's going on in life. <laughs> And in a way, this is how the Messianic Psalms work. In uh, downtown, we have been going through uh, a short series in looking at the Messianic Psalms to understand who Christ is and how the Old Testament Israelites understood the person and the work of this Christ. And the Messianic Psalms really have an immediate historical fulfillment, but they ultimately point toward a divine king to come. And it's always pointing us ahead and saying, there is someone who's going to make good on these promises. 
And in that sense, these psalms, the Messianic psalms in the Old Testament, are fragments of a picture of Christ who is to come. We do not know exactly the historical context or the personal situation that prompted David to write the psalm, but we know he is suffering because of his zeal for the Lord. And from this we realize that Christ who is to come is going to be the suffering servant. Now why is this important for us? I think August for many of us here in DC is a transition period. It's like halftime. We go in and we go back to the drawing board to look at the X's and the O's and figure out how we're going to come out and play the second half. And many of you sitting here in this room this morning, you have worked really hard so far and you are looking forward to some sort of relief in August and getting ready to re-engage in September. And maybe you're a worker looking to get away from work or you're a student gearing up for another semester. I'm sorry, I had to remind you of that, right? You, you were doing so well this morning until I just said that. And now you're like, dang it, preacher, like, I was doing well. Thanks a lot. And my prayer as we look at these psalms, in particular Psalm 60, 69, is that we would, as we think about all that we have to do now in the coming months, would pause and reorient our hearts and our vision on the person of Christ. Someone once said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And it would do us well to keep Christ front and centered as we sort of break from the busyness of life and prepare for what's to come. I think it's essential that we allow Christ to shape our hearts once again. And personally, this has been my prayer for myself and for my congregation at downtown, that our vision of Christ would create hunger in our hearts. We don't talk like this much in our churches these days, do we? But when you read of preachers generations ago, they talk about having their hearts stirred by Christ. And it's not just emotional stirring but it's life transformation. It changes us in a way that we see not only Christ differently, but we see ourselves and this place differently. It's no longer an obstacle to overcome, but it's a blessing, a calling to engage and to picture the beauty of Christ through our lives. And my prayer for us as we look into the text this morning is as one of the church fathers prayed, we taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, fountainhead, and thirst our souls for thee to fill. And I pray that our vision of Christ this morning will create this kind of hunger and longing for Christ. There are two things we want to look at about Christ the servant. First, is his humility, his humility. The psalm opens with David's desperate plea for deliverance from his enemies that threatened to overtake him. David uses a biblical metaphor of troubled waters to describe 
his present situation. And interestingly, the imagery and the language in verses 2 to 3 remind us that of prophet Jonah in Jonah chapter 2, where he also prayed a similar prayer. And when you compare these two stories, David, who is suffering because of his righteousness, and Jonah, who is suffering because of his sin, you realize suffering is a commonplace in all of us. And it doesn't take much to feel overwhelmed, does it? Because suffering is subjective. Whether you're a stay-at-home mom trying to stay engaged with a demanding toddler, or a worker trying to meet yet another deadline, or a student trying to get ready for another semester, or a kid who's trying to survive this worship service, suffering comes at us from every angle, and it takes us by surprise, and we feel so overwhelmed, often feeling crippled and not knowing what to do. And without God's larger story of redemption, suffering becomes absolutely meaningless. This is what David Brooks, a writer for the New York Times, said. He said, when suffering is not understood as a piece as a, uh, of a larger process, it leads to doubt, nihilism, and despair. But this is our hope the gospel says God does not waste our suffering. Remember what Apostle Paul said? God uses all things for his glory and for our good. So you see, the ark of redemption reaches beyond just our good days and gives every day of our lives meaning and dignity. Even the ones that leave us confused and utterly disappointed. God says, I have a plan for that. None of our days are wasted. It's like putting together Legos. If you have children, you know exactly what I mean. You buy those really nicely prepackaged Lego sets, right? And if you follow the directions, you're going to end up with this like spaceship, right? And you, when you open the bag and you pour out the Lego pieces, you're like, how, how is this going to be a spaceship? But you sort of Follow direction one by one, piece them together, and lo and behold, like three days later, you have a spaceship. <laughs> God is the master builder. And he takes all the pieces of our lives, even the most broken ones, even the most mundane ones, to make us more like Christ in his moral beauty. For this reason, we have hope as we face sufferings of all kinds. Let's get back to the text. Later in verses 13 through 18, David returns to this very metaphor, but with a twist. You begin to see his faith and hope in God. Okay? And David prays in verse 13, answer me at an acceptable time. He is no longer demanding God to save him, but he's saying, answer me at an acceptable time. In the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. And the trajectory of David's prayer is such that we expect him to pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. But when you get to verse 22 and all the way to verse 28, David prays for justice. Not mercy, but justice. In verse 23, he prays for the isolation of his enemies. 
that their friendship will dissolve. In verse 24, he prays for physical atrophy. Verse 25, he prays for God's wrath on their family. And in verse 27, 28, he prays for their death, eternal punishment. And you're thinking, what happened? What, what happened to this prayer of, God, I believe in you, rescue me, deliver me out of your great love? And some of you may be thinking, is it okay for Christians to pray like this? The short answer is no. We're not to pray this kind of prayer. But rather, we're to pray for grace, for mercy, for love, to repay evil with kindness, as Paul says. And as we read through David's prayer of judgment, we realize that there has to be a greater David to come. This divine king that the prophets spoke of all throughout the Old Testament. And later in John chapter 15, 25, Jesus quotes Psalm 69 verse 4, and he says, they hated me without reason. And this is moments before he is handed over to his enemies. And by quoting this verse, Jesus says, I am that suffering servant that Psalm 69 spoke of. He faced alienation from his family early in his ministry. Remember, they thought he was crazy. Rightfully so. If your older brother claims to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world, you would think he's crazy too. His friend Judas betrayed him with a kiss. And the rest fled at a moment of greatest need. He faced persecution from his enemies he brought false charges, who brought false charges against him. And even on the cross, his trust in God remained unwavering. But notice the difference. Even there on the cross, David does, Jesus does not pray for justice. Rather, Jesus prays for mercy. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And our salvation, this community, the body of Christ, the mission that we so much embrace to be in and for the city, to be a true neighborhood, is the fruit of that very prayer. Now, why would Jesus, even on the cross, pray such a prayer for his enemies? He is the humble servant. In Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote these words. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see what Jesus did? He lowered himself again and again and again until he couldn't go any lower. You know, in our church circles, we say the way up is down, but I wonder if we missed that point. I wonder if it's not about going up at all, but to go to a low place and to stay in a low place, to serve the people that God brings into our lives without question, without qualification, because he has first served us in such a way. And when James and John, the two brothers, 
asked for positions of power and privilege in the kingdom to come, Jesus replied, the greatest must be the slave of all. You see, Jesus redefined greatness. The idols of Washington celebrate those in position of power and privilege, those who lord over others. But Jesus celebrates those who take the low place to serve others. And that's what we are called to. That's what we are to aspire to. That we don't measure our success by number of things that we get done, per se, or even number of people we influence. But we ought to measure our success by the number of people we love well. Even the people that this society, this community, this city would say, oh, they're not that important. The church must be the voice that says, no, they are important. They matter. And we are committed to loving and serving them because this is what Christ has done for me. The election year is just around the corner. And we need to exercise our freedom to vote, to pray for our elected officials. We need to do all those things. But there's one thing I, I really don't look forward to during the election year, the campaign ads. You know, after a while, you wonder, what is going on? What's the point in all this? These officials who are asking for our vote, our trust, our support, are slandering one another. They insult and discredit one another and they turn people's stories into sound bites to elevate themselves. And when the disciples did the very same thing, jockeying for position in the kingdom to come, Jesus quietly rose, taking off his outer garment and wrapping a towel around his waist to serve, to perform the lowest task of washing his disciples' feet. And Jesus says to us, no servant is greater than his master, and you will be blessed if you do them. And so we as a church, we are called to a life of humble service. And that's what we want to be, a humble community, a safe place where people can be themselves without fear and shame, but they can come and experience the welcome of God. So if you are visiting, you're here to learn more about Christian faith. You know, what we have done so far might have confused you more than anything else. And that's okay. We encourage you to keep on coming and get plugged in and ask questions okay. and express your doubts. It's okay. We're committed to being that community. And we want to walk with you in your journey of faith. We want to be a humble community. But not only that, we want to be a creative community. Creative community that seeks to serve people well. That's what humility really is, right? C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, okay? So if you're thinking about yourself less, then it's safe to assume you're thinking about others more. And when you think of others more, hopefully it will give you wisdom, 
insight into how we could better serve the people around us. And that's the kind of community we want to be. And I, you know, the all the uh, announcements, um, I love that. I feel like that's, that's where you guys are. You guys are figuring out ways to get into the community, creative outlets to, to demonstrate the gospel in word and deed. And I commend you for that. And I, I want to encourage you to keep on doing what you're doing and to serve this community humbly and creatively. Second, not only Christ's humility, but Christ's sacrifice. Christ's sacrifice. David is bewildered. He is confused and a bit concerned. In verses 6 and 7, David raises a question. If my enemies could insult me with impunity, what about the people? What about God's people? What would happen to them? But David doesn't realize one of the key mysteries of the gospel, and that is this. God uses the weak things to shame the strong and the foolish things to confound the wise. You see, the weakness of God serves a redemptive purpose. When you look at the, the, the narrative of Christ, especially the very last week of his life, you realize, wow, may, maybe he was wrong. Maybe he is not who he said he was because we see him being insulted, mocked, and ultimately crucified. And there on the cross, the eternal fellowship of the Trinity was broken for the first time. And God the Father had to turn his face away. And for those several hours, Jesus was the most hideous and the most sinful person. And you look at that image of a dying Messiah and you think, was it meaningless? Is it defeat? The gospel says, no, it was not defeat. It was victory. I love how C.S. Lewis said it. He said in the book, The Chronicles of Narnia, he said, there is the deeper magic from, the, from before the dawn of time with which I did not know. If an innocent being willingly offered their life in place of a traitor's, the deep magic would reverse death itself and restore them to life. See what C.S. Lewis is saying? He is saying death has no power over Christ because death is the consequence of sin and because Christ is sinless, he's not subject to death. And as we think about Christ and his sacrifice for us, Again, he calls his people, the church, to a life of sacrifice. But sacrifice could be a daunting thing. It could be a difficult thing. But it's the gospel that flips that upside down. It takes the call, the life of sacrifice, and makes it into a privilege, not a burden. Helen Rosevere, a missionary to Congo during the, the civil, its civil war in 1964, was held uh, as a prisoner by the rebel forces for five months, enduring all kinds of suffering. 
and in a moment of weakness after being severely beaten, she thought God had failed her. And there, laying alone in a dark room, she said she was about to lose her faith until God showed up and began speaking these words. She writes, suddenly the why dropped away from me and an unbelievable peace flowed in. Even in the midst of the wickedness, he breathed a word into my troubled mind. And that word, she says, was privilege. You see, unless you understand the gospel, the call to sacrifice will only be a heavy burden that will either crush us or shame us because we can't live up to it. But if you understand the gospel, the call to sacrifice becomes our greatest privilege. It becomes a badge of honor for those who call themselves followers of Christ. And only when we find our identity and value in the gospel can this happen. We look at the resources that we possess, be it time, money, energy, and these things become rare commodities in D.C., don't they? We are logging in hours of work. And these few windows of time, free time that we have, become opportunities to be ourselves, to unwind, to do what we want. And we are wired to think that way in this city. But the gospel pushes against that and says, I want you to reassess how you view your free time, your money, your energy. The gospel says, when we understand what Christ has done for us and the call that he gives us, and these resources become commodities that we share, that we could be generous with. Why? Because we don't have to take these resources, say time and money, to make a name for ourselves because the gospel gives us a name. We are Christians, a child of God. We don't have to take these resources to achieve self-worth because the gospel gives us self-worth. It says we are far more precious and valuable than the things that we possess will ever amount to. We are more than what we do, what we possess. And when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible says, why would you reduce yourself to your paycheck, to your accomplishments, to your GPA, to your resume? Why would you do such a thing? You are an image bearer, a child of God, His beloved, bought with the precious blood of Christ. You are far more precious than what the idols of Washington would say you are. And when you lay hold of that, now all of a sudden, everything you possess, you possess with an open hand. You say, yeah, of course. It's not about me and kind of name I can make for myself or self-worth that I could achieve. But it's about taking these things to love and serve people well. You see, his sacrifice frees us to serve so that this place here, this city, 
and the relationships that God has blessed us with, they become the stage where God's drama of redemption unfolds. And you and I are called to play an active role in that story. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your, your word that teaches us to give ourselves fully to you and to the people that you have brought into our lives without reservation, without fear, without shame, without guilt, without wondering if this is worth it because you have given us everything we could ask for and want. And we find all of that in the gospel narrative that says to us that we are your beloved, the beautiful bride of Christ, that you cherish us, that you love us. And I pray that you would help us to believe so that our faith would translate into obedience as we seek to be a humble community that welcomes people and a sacrificial community, a community that seeks to serve people well. In Christ's name, amen. Everyone can stand for our response song.